Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with post-scarcity anarchism and a chapter on technology, how it can be both good and bad, and the difference between those situations and what leads to one and what leads to the other. Earlier in the chapter is discussed the ways in which technology can quite evidently eliminate toil at a vast scale and could be put to better use for actually serving people rather than capital. And now we're moving on to a different area of technology. The ecological use of technology. I have tried thus far to deal with the possibility of eliminating toil, material insecurity, and centralized economic control, issues which, if utopian, are at least tangible. In the present section, I would like to deal with a problem that may seem highly subjective, but which is nonetheless of compelling importance. The need to make man's dependence upon the natural world a visible and living part of his culture. Actually, this problem is peculiar only to a highly urbanized and industrialized society. In nearly all pre-industrial cultures, man's relationship to his natural environment was well-defined, viable, and sanctified by the full weight of tradition. Changes in season, variations in rainfall, the life cycles of the plants and animals on which humans depended for food and clothing, the distinctive features of the area occupied by the community. All were familiar and comprehensible, and evoked in men a sense of religious awe, of oneness with nature, and, more pragmatically, a sense of respectful dependence. Looking back to the earliest civilizations of the Western world, we rarely find evidence of a system of social tyranny so overbearing and ruthless that it ignored this relationship. Barbarian invasions and, more insidiously, the development of commercial civilizations may have destroyed the reverential attitude of agrarian cultures toward nature, but the normal development of agricultural systems however exploitative they were of men, rarely led to the destruction of the soil and terrain. During the most oppressive periods in the history of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, the ruling classes kept the irrigation dikes in good repair, and tried to promote rational methods of food cultivation. Even the ancient Greeks, heirs to a thin, mountainous forest soil, that suffered heavily from erosion, shrewdly reclaimed much of their arable land by turning to orchardry and viticulture. It was not until commercial agricultural systems and highly urbanized societies developed that the natural environment was unsparingly exploited. Some of the worst cases of soil destruction in the ancient world were provided by the giant slave-worked commercial farms of North Africa and the Italian peninsula. In our own time, the development of technology and the growth of cities has brought man's alienation from nature to the breaking point. Western man finds himself confined to a largely synthetic urban environment, far removed physically from the land, and his relationship to the natural world is mediated entirely by machines. 
he lacks familiarity with how most of his goods are produced, and his foods bear only the faintest resemblance to the animals and plants from which they were derived. Boxed into a sanitized urban milieu, almost institutional in form and appearance, modern man is denied even a spectator's role in the agricultural and industrial systems that satisfy his material needs. He is a pure consumer, an insensate receptacle. It would be unfair, perhaps, to say that he is disrespectful toward the natural environment. The fact is, he scarcely knows what ecology means, or what his environment requires to remain in balance. The balance between man and nature must be restored. I have tried to show elsewhere that unless we establish some kind of equilibrium between man and the natural world, the viability of the human species will be placed in grave jeopardy. Footnote 27. Here, I shall try to show how the new technology can be used ecologically to reawaken man's sense of dependence upon the environment. I shall try to show how, by reintroducing the natural world into the human experience, we can contribute to the achievement of human wholeness. The classical utopians fully realized that the first step towards wholeness must be to remove the contradiction between town and country. Quote, it is impossible, wrote Fourier nearly a century and a half ago, to organize a regular and well-balanced association without bringing into play the labors of the field, or at least gardens, orchards, flocks and herds, poultry yards, and a great variety of species, animal and vegetable. End quote. Shocked by the social effects of the Industrial Revolution, Fourier added, quote, they are ignorant of this principle in England, where they experiment with artisans, with manufacturing labor alone, which cannot by itself suffice to sustain social union. End quote. Citation 18. To argue that the modern urban dweller should once again enjoy the labors of the field might well seem like gallows humor. A restoration of peasant agriculture prevalent in Fourier's day is neither possible nor desirable. Charles Gide was surely correct when he observed that agricultural labor, quote, is not necessarily more attractive than industrial labor. To till the earth has always been regarded as the type of painful toil, of toil which is done with the sweat of one's brow. End quote. Citation 19. Fourier does not answer this objection by suggesting that his phalansteries will mainly cultivate fruits and vegetables instead of grains. If our vision were to extend no further than prevailing techniques of land management, the only alternative to peasant agriculture would seem to be a highly specialized and centralized form of farming, its techniques paralleling the methods used in present-day industry. Far from achieving a balance between town and country, we would be faced with a synthetic environment that had totally assimilated the natural world. If we grant that the land and community must be reintegrated physically, that the community must exist in an agricultural matrix which renders man's dependence upon nature explicit, the problem we face is how to achieve this transformation without imposing painful toil on the community. How, in short, 
can husbandry, ecological forms of food cultivation and farming on a human scale, be practiced without sacrificing mechanization? Some of the most promising technological advances in agriculture made since World War II are as suitable for small-scale, ecological forms of land management as they are for the immense industrial-type commercial units that have become prevalent over the last few decades. Let us consider an example. The augermatic feeding of livestock illustrates a cardinal principle of rational farm mechanization. The deployment of conventional machines and devices in a way that virtually eliminates arduous farm labor. By linking a battery of silos with augers, different nutrients can be mixed and transported to feed pens merely by pushing some buttons and pulling a few switches. A job that may have required the labor of five or six men working half a day with pitchforks and buckets can now be performed by one man in a few minutes. This type of mechanization is intrinsically neutral. It can be used to feed immense herds or just a few hundred head of cattle. The silos may contain natural feed or synthetic hormonized nutrients. The feeder can be employed on relatively small farms with mixed livestock or on large beef raising ranches or on dairy farms of all sizes. In short, augermatic feeding can be placed in the service of the most abusive kind of commercial exploitation or of the most sensitive applications of ecological principles. This holds true for most of the farm machines that have been designed, in many cases simply redesigned to achieve greater versatility in recent years. The modern tractor, for example, is a work of superb mechanical ingenuity. Garden-type models can be used with extraordinary flexibility for a large variety of tasks. They are light and extremely manageable, and they can follow the contour of the most exacting terrain without damaging the land. Large tractors, especially those used in hot climates, are likely to have air-conditioned cabs, in addition to pulling equipment, they may have attachments for digging post holes, for doing the work of forklift trucks, or even for providing power units for grain elevators. Plows have been developed to meet every contingency in tillage. Advanced models are even regulated hydraulically to rise and fall with the lay of the land. Mechanical planters are available for virtually every kind of crop. Minimum tillage is achieved by planters which apply seed, fertilizer, and pesticides, of course, simultaneously, a technique that telescopes several different operations into a single one that and reduces the soil compaction often produced by the recurrent use of heavy machines. The variety of mechanical harvesters has reached dazzling proportions. Harvesters have been developed for many different kinds of orchards, berries, vines, vegetables, and field crops. Barns, feed pens, and storage units have been totally revolutionized by augers, conveyor belts, airtight silos, automatic manure removers, climate-controlled devices, etc. Crops are mechanically shelled, washed, counted, preserved by freezing or canning, packaged, and crated. 
The construction of concrete-lined irrigation ditches has become a simple mechanical operation that can be performed by one or two excavating machines. Terrain with poor drainage or subsoil can be improved by earth-moving equipment and by tillage devices that penetrate beyond the true soil. Although a great deal of agricultural research is devoted to the development of harmful chemical agents and nutritionally dubious crops, there have been extraordinary advances in the genetic improvement of food plants. Many new grain and vegetable varieties are resistant to insect predators, plant diseases, and cold weather. In many cases, these varieties are a definite improvement over natural ancestral types, and they have been used to open large areas of intractable land to food cultivation. Let us pause at this point to envision how our free community might be integrated with its natural environment. We suppose the community to have been established after a careful study has been made of its natural ecology, its air and water resources, its climate, its geological formations, its raw materials, its soils, and its natural flora and fauna. Land management by the community is guided entirely by ecological principles, so that an equilibrium is maintained between the environment and its human inhabitants. Industrially rounded, the community forms a distinct unit within a natural matrix. It is socially and aesthetically in balance with the area it occupies. Agriculture is highly mechanized in the community, but as mixed as possible with respect to crops, livestock, and timber. Variety of flora and fauna is promoted as a means of controlling pest infestations and enhancing scenic beauty. Large-scale farming is practiced only where it does not conflict with the ecology of the region. Owing to the generally mixed character of food cultivation, agriculture is pursued by small farming units, each demarcated from the others by tree belts, shrubs, pastures, and meadows. In rolling, hilly, or mountainous country, land with sharp gradients is covered by timber to prevent erosion and conserve water. The soil on each acre is studied carefully and committed only to those crops for which it is most suited. Every effort is made to blend town and country without sacrificing the distinctive contribution that each has to offer to the human experience. The ecological region forms the living, social, cultural, and biotic boundaries of the community or of the several communities that share its resources. Each community contains many vegetable and flower gardens, attractive arbors, parkland, even streams and ponds which support fish and aquatic birds. The countryside, from which food and raw materials are acquired, not only constitutes the immediate environs of the community, accessible to all by foot, but also invades the community. Although town and country retain their identity, and the uniqueness of each is highly prized and fostered, nature appears everywhere in the town, and the town seems to have caressed and left a gentle, human imprint on nature. I believe that a free community will regard agriculture as husbandry, an activity as expressive and enjoyable as crafts. Relieved of toil by agricultural machines, communitarians will approach food cultivation with the same playful and creative attitude that men so often bring to gardening. 
agriculture will become a living part of human society, a source of pleasant physical activity, and, by virtue of its ecological demands, an intellectual, scientific, and artistic challenge. Communitarians will blend with the world of life around them as organically as the community blends with its region. They will regain the sense of oneness with nature that existed in humans from primordial times. Nature and the organic modes of thought it always fosters will become an integral part of human culture. It will reappear with a fresh spirit in man's paintings, literature, philosophy, dances, architecture, domestic furnishings, and in his very gestures and day-to-day activities. Culture and the human psyche will be thoroughly suffused by a new animism. The region will never be exploited, but it will be used as fully as possible. Every attempt will be made by the community to satisfy its requirements locally, to use the region's energy resources, minerals, timber, soil, water, animals, and plants as rationally and humanistically as possible, and without violating ecological principles. In this connection, we can foresee that the community will employ new techniques that are still being developed today, many of which lend themselves superbly to a regionally-based economy. I refer here to methods for extracting trace and diluted resources from the earth, water, and air, to solar, wind, hydroelectric, and geothermal energy, to the use of heat pumps, vegetable fuels, solar ponds, thermoelectric converters, and, eventually, controlled thermonuclear reactions. There is a kind of industrial archaeology that reveals, in many areas, the evidence of a once burgeoning economic activity long abandoned by our predecessors. In the Hudson Valley, the Rhine Valley, the Appalachians and the Pyrenees, we find the relics of mines and once highly developed metallurgical crafts, the fragmentary remains of local industries, and the outlines of long deserted farms. All vestiges of flourishing communities based on local raw materials and resources. These communities declined because the products they once furnished were elbowed out by large-scale national industries based on mass production techniques and concentrated sources of raw materials. The old resources are often still available for use by each locality. Valueless, in a highly urbanized society, they are eminently suitable for use by decentralized communities and they await the application of industrial techniques that are adapted for small-scale quality production. If we were to take a careful inventory of the resources available in many depopulated regions of the world, the possibility that communities could satisfy many of their material needs locally is likely to be much greater than we suspect. Technology, by its continual development, tends to expand the local possibilities. As an example, let us consider how seemingly inferior and highly intractable resources are made available by technological advances. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Mesabi Range in Minnesota provided the American steel industry with extremely rich ores, an advantage which promoted the rapid expansion of the domestic metal industry. As these reserves declined, the country was faced with the problem of mining taconite, 
a low-grade ore that is about 40% iron. Conventional mining methods are virtually impossible. It takes a churn drill an hour to bite through only one foot of taconite. Recently, however, the mining of taconite became feasible. A jet flame drill was developed, which cuts through the ore at the rate of 20 to 30 feet an hour. After holes are burned by the flame, the ore is blasted and processed for the steel industry by newly perfected grinding, separating, and agglomerating operations. Soon, it may be possible to extract highly diffused or diluted materials from the earth, from a wide variety of gaseous waste products, and from the sea. Some of our most valuable metals are actually fairly common, but they exist in highly diffused or trace amounts. Hardly a patch of soil or common rock exists that does not contain traces of gold, larger quantities of uranium, and even larger amounts of other industrially useful elements, such as magnesium, zinc, copper, and sulfur. About 5% of the Earth's crust is made of iron. How can we extract these resources? The problem has been solved, in principle at least, by the analytical techniques chemists use to detect these elements. As the chemist Jacob Rosen argues, if an element can be detected in the laboratory, there is reason to hope that it can be extracted on a sufficiently large scale to be used by industry. For more than half a century, most of the world's commercial nitrogen has been extracted from the atmosphere. Magnesium, chlorine, bromine, and caustic soda are acquired from seawater, and sulfur from calcium sulfate and industrial wastes. Large amounts of industrially useful hydrogen could be collected as a byproduct of the electrolysis of brine, but normally it is burned or released in the air by chlorine-producing plants. Carbon could be rescued in enormous quantities from smoke and used economically. Carbon is comparatively rare in nature but is dissipated together with other gaseous compounds in the atmosphere. The problem industrial chemists face in extracting valuable elements and compounds from the sea and ordinary rock is the cost of the energy needed. Two methods exist, ion exchange and chromatography. And if further perfected for industrial uses, they could be used to select or separate the desired substances from solutions but the amount of energy needed to use these methods would be very costly in terms of real wealth. Unless there is an unexpected breakthrough in extractive techniques, there is little likelihood that conventional sources of energy, fossil fuels like coal and oil, will be used to solve the problem. It is not that we lack energy per se, but we are just beginning to learn how to use sources that are available in almost limitless quantity. The gross radiant energy striking the Earth's surface from the Sun is estimated to be more than 3,000 times the annual energy consumption of mankind today. Although a portion of this energy is converted into wind or used for photosynthesis by vegetation, a staggering quantity is available for other uses. The problem is how to collect it to satisfy a portion of our energy needs. If solar energy could be collected for house heating, for example, 20-30% to 30 of the conventional energy resources we normally employ could be redirected to other purposes. 
If we could collect solar energy for all or most of our cooking, water heating, smelting, and power production, we would have relatively little need for fossil fuels. Solar devices have been designed for nearly all of these functions. We can heat houses, cook food, boil water, melt metals, and produce electricity with devices that use the sun's energy exclusively. But we can't do it efficiently in every latitude of the Earth. And we are still confronted with a number of technical problems that can be solved only by crash research programs. At this writing, quite a few houses have been built that are effectively heated by solar energy. In the United States, the best known of these are the MIT Experimental Buildings in Massachusetts, the Loft House in Denver, and the Thomason Homes in Washington, D.C. Thomason, whose fuel cost for a solar-heated house barely reaches $5 a year, seems to have developed one of the most practical systems at hand. Solar heat in a Thomason house is collected from the roof and transferred by circulating water to a storage tank in the basement. The water, incidentally, can also be used for cooling the house and as an emergency supply for fire and drinking. The system is simple and fairly cheap. Located in Washington, near the 40th parallel of latitude, the Thomason houses stand at the edge of our solar belt. The latitudes from 0 to 40 degrees north and south. This belt is the geographic area where the sun's rays can be used most effectively for domestic and industrial energy. With efficient solar heating, Thomason requires a minuscule amount of supplemental conventional fuel to heat his Washington homes. Two approaches to solar house heating are possible in cooler areas. Heating systems could be more elaborate, which would reduce the consumption of conventional fuel to levels approximating those of the Thomson homes. Or, simple conventional fuel systems could be used to satisfy anywhere from 10 to 50% of the heating needs. As Hans Thuring observes, with an eye towards cost and effort, quote, The decisive advantage of solar heating lies in the fact that no running costs arise, except the electricity bill for driving the fans, which is very small. Thus, the one single investment for the installation pays once and for all the heating costs for the lifetime of the house. In addition, the system works automatically without smoke, soot, and fume production, and saves all trouble in stoking, refueling, cleaning, repair, and other work. Adding solar heat to the energy system of a country helps to increase the wealth of the nation. And if all houses in areas with favorable conditions were equipped with solar heating systems, fuel saving worth millions of pounds yearly could be achieved. The work of Telks, Hotel, Luff, Bliss, and other scientists who are paving the way for solar heating is real pioneer work, the full significance of which will emerge more clearly in the future. End quote. Citation 20. The most widespread applications of solar energy devices are in cooking and water heating. Many thousands of solar stoves are used in underdeveloped countries, in Japan, and in the warm latitudes of the United States. A solar stove is simply an umbrella-like reflector equipped with a grill that can broil meat or boil a quart of water within 15 minutes in bright sunlight. Such a stove is safe, portable, and clean. It requires no fuel or matches, nor does it produce any annoying smoke. 
A portable solar oven delivers temperatures as high as 450 degrees and is even more compact and easier to handle than a solar stove. Solar water heaters are used widely in private homes, apartment buildings, laundries and swimming pools. Some 25,000 of these units are employed in Florida and they are gradually coming into vogue in California. Some of the most impressive advances in the use of solar energy have occurred in industry. Although the majority of these applications are marginal at best and largely experimental in nature. The simplest is the solar furnace. The collector is usually a single large parabolic mirror, or more likely a huge array of many parabolic mirrors mounted in a large housing, a heliostat, a smaller horizontally mounted mirror that follows the movement of the sun, reflects the rays onto the collector. Several hundred of these furnaces are currently in use. One of the largest, Dr. Felix Trom's Mount Louis Furnace develops 75 kilowatts of electric power and is used primarily in high temperature research. Since the sun's rays do not contain any impurities, the furnace will melt 100 pounds of steel without the contamination produced by conventional techniques. A solar furnace developed by the US Quartermaster Corps at Natick, Massachusetts develops 5000 degrees centigrade a temperature high enough to melt steel I-beams. Solar furnaces have many limitations, but these are not insurmountable. The efficiency of the furnaces can be appreciably reduced by haze, fog, clouds, and atmospheric dust, and also by heavy wind loadings which deflect equipment and interfere with the accurate focusing of the sun's rays. Attempts are being made to resolve some of these problems by sliding roofs, covering material for the mirrors, and firm, protective housings. On the other hand, solar furnaces are clean, they are efficient when they are in good working order, and they produce extremely high-grade metals, which none of the conventional furnaces currently in use can match. Equally promising as an area of research are current attempts to convert solar energy into electricity. Theoretically, an area roughly a square yard in size placed perpendicular to the sun's rays receives energy equivalent to one kilowatt. Quote, Considering that in the arid zones of the world many millions of square meters of desert land are free for power production, observes Thiering, we find that by utilizing only 1% of the available ground for solar plants, a capacity could be reached far higher than the present installed capacity of all fuel-operated and hydroelectric power plants in the world. End quote. Citation 21. In practice, work along the line suggested by Thiering has been inhibited by cost considerations, by market factors. There is no large demand for electricity in those underdeveloped hot areas of the world where the project is most feasible, and by essentially the conservatism of designers in the power field. Research emphasis has been placed on the development of solar batteries, a result largely of work in the space program. Solar batteries are based on the thermoelectric effect. If strips of antimony and bismuth are joined in a loop, for example, a temperature differential made, say, by producing heat in one junction, yields electric power. Research on solar batteries over the past decade or so resulted in devices that have a power converting efficiency as high as 15% and 
and 20-25% is quite attainable in the not-too-distant future. Footnote 28. Grouped in large panels, solar batteries have been used to power electric cars, small boats, telephone lines, radios, phonographs, clocks, sewing machines, and other appliances. Eventually, the cost of producing solar batteries is expected to diminish to a point where they will provide electric power for homes and even small industrial facilities. Finally, the sun's energy can be used in still another way, by collecting heat in a body of water. For some time now, engineers have been studying ways of acquiring electric power from the temperature differences produced by the sun's heat in the sea. Theoretically, a solar pond occupying a square kilometer could yield 30 million kilowatt hours of electricity annually, enough to match the output of a sizable power station operating more than 12 hours every day of the year. The power, as Henry Tabor observes, can be acquired without any fuel costs, quote, merely by the pond lying in the sun, end quote, citation 22. Heat can be extracted from the bottom of the pond by passing the hot water over a heat exchanger and then returning the water to the pond. In warm latitudes, 10,000 square miles committed to this method of power production would provide enough electricity to satisfy the needs of 400 million people. The ocean's tides are still another untapped resource to which we could turn for electric power. We could trap the ocean's waters at high tide in a natural basin, say a bay or the mouth of a river, and release them through turbines at low tide. A number of places exist where the tides are high enough to produce electric power in large quantities. The French have already built an immense tidal power installation near the mouth of the Rani River at St. Malo, with an expected net yield of 544 million kilowatt hours annually. They also plan to build another dam in the Bay of Mont Saint-Michel. In England, highly suitable conditions for a tidal dam exist above the confluence of the Severn and Wye rivers. A dam here could provide the electric power produced by a million tons of coal annually. A superb location for producing tide-generated electricity exists at Passamacoddy Bay on the border between Maine and New Brunswick, and good locales exist on the Mesen Gulf, a Russian coastal area in the Arctic. Argentina has plans for building a tidal dam across the estuary of the Deseado River near Puerto Desiree on the Atlantic coast. Many other coastal areas could be used to generate electricity from tidal power, but except for France, no country has started work on this resource. We could use temperature differences in the sea or in the earth to generate electric power in sizable quantities. A temperature differential as high as 17 degrees centigrade is not uncommon in the surface areas of tropical waters. Along coastal areas of Siberia, winter differences of 30 degrees exist between water below the ice crust and the air. The interior of the Earth becomes progressively warmer as we descend, providing selective temperature differentials with respect to the surface. Heat pumps could be used to avail ourselves of these differentials for industrial purposes or to heat homes. The heat pump works like a mechanical refrigerator. A circulating refrigerant draws off heat from a medium, dissipates it, 
and returns to repeat the process. During winter months, the pumps, circulating a refrigerant in a shallow well, could be used to absorb subsurface heat and release it in a house. In the summer, the process could be reversed. Heat withdrawn from the house could be dissipated in the earth. The pumps do not require costly chimneys. They do not pollute the atmosphere, and they eliminate the nuisance of stoking furnaces and carrying out ashes. If we could acquire electricity or direct heat from solar energy, wind power, or temperature differentials, the heating system of a home or factory would be completely self-sustaining. It would not drain valuable hydrocarbon resources or require external sources of supply. Winds could also be used to provide electric power in many areas of the world. About 1 40th of the solar energy reaching the Earth's surface is converted into wind. Although much of this goes into making the jet stream, a great deal of wind energy is available a few hundred feet above the ground. A UN report, using monetary terms to gauge the feasibility of wind power, finds that efficient wind plants in many areas could produce electricity at an overall cost of 5 mils per kilowatt hour, a figure that approximates the price of commercially generated electric power. Several wind generators have already been used with success. The famous 1,250 kilowatt generator at Grandpa's Knob near Rutland, Vermont, successfully fed alternating current into the lines of the Central Vermont Public Service Company until a parts shortage during World War II made it difficult to keep the installation in good repair. Since then, larger, more efficient generators have been designed. P.H. Thomas, working for the Federal Power Commission, has designed a 7,500 kilowatt windmill that would provide electricity at a capital investment of $68 per kilowatt. Eugene Ayres notes that if the construction costs of Thomas's windmill were double the amount estimated by its designer, quote, wind turbines would seem nevertheless to compare favorably with hydroelectric installations which cost around $300 per kilowatt. End quote. Citation 23. An enormous potential for generating electricity by means of wind power exists in many regions of the world. In England, for example, where a careful three-year survey was made of possible wind power sites, it was found that the newer wind turbines could generate several million kilowatts, saving from two to four million tons of coal annually. There should be no illusions about the extraction of trace minerals from rocks, about solar and wind power, or about the use of heat pumps. Except perhaps for tidal power and the extraction of raw materials from the sea, these sources cannot supply man with the bulky quantities of raw materials and the large blocks of energy needed to sustain densely concentrated populations and highly centralized industries. Solar devices, wind turbines, and heat pumps will produce relatively small quantities of power. Used locally and in conjunction with each other, they could probably meet all the power needs of small communities. But we cannot foresee a time when they will be able to furnish the electricity currently used by cities the size of New York, London, or Paris. Limitation of scope, however, could represent a profound advantage 
from an ecological point of view. The sun, the wind, and the earth are experiential realities to which men have responded sensuously and reverently from time immemorial. Out of these primal elements, man developed his sense of dependence on, and respect for, the natural environment, a dependence that kept his destructive activities in check. The Industrial Revolution and the urbanized world that followed obscured nature's role in human experience, hiding the sun with a pall of smoke, blocking the winds with massive buildings, desecrating the earth with sprawling cities. Man's dependence on the natural world became invisible. It became theoretical and intellectual in character. The subject matter of textbooks, monographs, and lectures. True, this theoretical dependence supplied us with insights, partial ones at best, into the natural world, but its one-sidedness robbed us of all sensuous dependence on and all visible contact and unity with nature. In losing these, we lost a part of ourselves as human beings. We became alienated from nature. Our technology and environment became totally inanimate, totally synthetic a purely inorganic physical milieu that promoted the de-animization of man and his thought. To bring the sun, the wind, the earth, indeed the world of life, back into technology, into the means of human survival, would be a revolutionary renewal of man's ties to nature. To restore this dependence in a way that evoked a sense of regional uniqueness in each community. A sense not only of generalized dependence, but of dependence on a specific region with distinct qualities of its own, would give this renewal a truly ecological character. A real ecological system would emerge, a delicately interlaced pattern of local resources, honored by continual study and artful modification. With the growth of a true sense of regionalism, every resource would find its place in a natural, stable balance. An organic unity of social, technological, and natural elements. Art would assimilate technology by becoming social art, the art of the community as a whole. The free community would be able to rescale the tempo of life, the work patterns of man, its own architecture and its systems of transportation and communication to human dimensions. The electric car, quiet, slow-moving, and clean, would become the preferred mode of urban transportation, replacing the noisy, filthy, high-speed automobile. Monorails would link community to community, reducing the number of highways that scar the countryside. Crafts would regain their honored position as supplements to mass manufacture. They would become a form of domestic, day-to-day -day artistry. A high standard of excellence, I believe, would replace the strictly quantitative criteria of production that prevail today. A respect for the durability of goods and the conservation of raw materials would replace the shabby, huckster-oriented criteria that result in built-in obsolescence and an insensate consumer society. The community would become a beautifully molded arena of life, a vitalizing source of culture, and a deeply personal, ever-nourishing source of human solidarity. And that is going to do it for this week. Next time we'll be finishing up this whole chapter on technology, and it's a short 
conclusion, so I will probably add some thoughts about the chapter on a whole at the end. Not today, because this has already been a long one. If you have any thoughts, questions, comments, corrections, suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. And this show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. You can also go to patreon.com slash abnormalmapping to support the network and get tons of bonus shows that I endorse. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.